Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Talking France. There is always a lot to talk about in France and this week's episode is brimming with important issues and changes that listeners will be keen to know about. As rubbish piles up on the streets of Paris, the controversial pension reform bill reaches a crucial moment in the French Parliament. Will President Emmanuel Macron get enough votes to get it through? The French taxman is famously demanding, but perhaps not as mean-spirited as people might think. We look at how taxes are rising for those owning property in the country and how you can get help with understanding your bills. We'll also hear why one famous French town is handing out live chickens to residents, whether people in Paris really will be able to swim in the Seine River in the coming years, and clear up confusion many have over France's laws around the hijab headscarf. How many people in the world speak French? Where are they all? And what on earth is this back? Backwards French lingo known as Verlang. We'll explain all as we mark International Day of the Francophone World. I'm Ben McPartland, your host, and to get to the bottom of all these subjects, I'll once again be calling on the local France's editor Emma Pearson, journalist Jen Mansfield, and politics expert John Litchfield. Hi guys, good to have you back with us again. We should start, as always, with the biggest story in France right now. It's still the biggest story. It is, of course, strikes and the pension reform bill. Wednesday this week marked another day of action. The strike saw nationwide train services disrupted, but city transport services was less impacted than they have been. On previous days, there may be more strike action to come. Now, the bill has been through both French chambers of parliament and the joint committee, and now France's National Assembly will get one more opportunity to look over the final version of the text and then the government hopes vote in favour of it. We'll hear shortly from our politics expert John Litchfield on whether the President Emmanuel Macron has enough votes to get this through and what happens if he doesn't. But first, Jen, we need to talk about garbage. Images have gone round the world in recent days of rubbish and trash piling up on the streets of Paris. What's going on? Yeah, so as you mentioned, a lot of us have been talking about these pictures of huge stacks of garbage piling up all across France's capital city. And this is because many of Paris's trash collectors have gone on strike in protest against pension reform as well. Now, it's worth noting that some waste workers in other parts of France are on strike too, like in cities such as Nantes or Bourges. But we're focusing on Paris because over 7,000 tons of waste have been left on the capital streets in recent days. It's also worth pointing out that not all of Paris's trash collectors are on strike and that not all of the city has been impacted by overflowing garbage cans. About half of Paris's arrondissements, or districts, are impacted, and the other ones that are run by private trash collection companies have not been. So that is to say we are talking about public sector waste collectors. 
On top of that, Paris's three primary waste incinerators have also been on standstill. Unions have said that they're planning to continue this action until at least March 20th, but the government has called on Paris local authorities to use controversial strike-breaking powers known as requisition to force waste collectors back to work. Indeed, if you've missed out on any of these striking images from Paris, visit our website, thelocal.fr. Now, Jen, why are refuse collectors on strike? You mentioned it's to do with the pension reform bill. Just remind listeners what their particular grievance is. So the reason that waste workers are striking is because, as you mentioned, they're also impacted by pension reform. According to the CGT union that represents many of these workers, waste collectors and drivers can currently draw a basic minimum pension from the age of 57. But under the pension reform bill, as it stands, they two would have to work two more years. And the CGT union representing these workers also said to AFP that one of their primary reasons for striking in recent days is that they have a life expectancy that is significantly lower than others, that is to say about 12 to 17 years below the national average, meaning they have less time to enjoy their retirement, particularly if the reform bill goes through. Now, Jen, another sector that has been holding rolling strikes in recent days are refinery workers. Is there any update on that and the fuel situation in France? So, as you mentioned, refinery workers have continued walkouts and blockades in this past week, but experts are still warning against panic buying when it comes to petrol. Jean-Louis Chilansky, uh, the former president of the Union for Oil Industries, told BFM TV on Sunday that there's no risk of widespread fuel shortages in the next few days because there's still 200 depots that can supply petrol stations across the country. He also told the French news channel that if strike action continues, then there could be a risk of shortages in the future. But as of now, we're not in the same situation that we were in October. Now let's turn to the pension reform bill itself. And it's time to bring in our politics expert, John Litchfield, who joins us on the line from Normandy. John, we're reaching crunch time for the bill in the French parliament. Macron is relying on the right-wing Les Républicains party to get this reform through. But there appears to be plenty of reluctant lawmakers in the party. Do you think he will get enough votes to get this bill through? And what happens if he doesn't? Well, I mean, that is the $10 million question. I think it was uh, Lyndon Johnson who said that the art of politics is the art of counting. And uh, that's what they're doing, counting and recounting who are the definite votes, who are the sort of iffy votes, and who are the definitely no votes. And it's a bit more complicated than just the Republican, because I think there are seven of the 250 supposedly pro-Macron deputies who said that they're either going to abstain mostly and two or three vote against, which also complicates the calculation. In the end, though, it's the 61 members of the centre-right, Les Republicans, as you say, who, who will swing it one way or another. And if you do the calculation, as I've been trying to do, it, it should be possible for Macron to win this. He's only, he's three or four seats to certain, uh, short of being certain to win, but likely to win. But the problem is, for him, is that good enough? You know, if he goes in and the Republicans, who seem to be a slippery bunch, don't vote as they say they're going to vote, or it just goes down slowly, he can't then use this other constitutional power he has of forcing through the, the bill without a vote after having lost the vote. Once you've lost the vote, that's it. That's the Parliament's decision. The only thing you can do then is start with a completely new piece of legislation, which is unlikely. So he faces a real dilemma. Thank you, John. Now, let's move on to who we are talking about in France this week. As listeners will know, we like to pick out a French personality or celebrity who's been in the news. This week, Jen, we're going for the French taxman. 
Bear with us here. He or she might actually be nicer than you expect, even though they're increasingly likely to send you a big bill if you are a property owner in France. Now, there's been some changes to the French taxation system for property owners that might affect you, especially if you are a second homeowner in France, like many of our listeners. Jen, just walk us through these changes. Before we get started, there are two types of property tax in France. We should establish the difference. So the first is tax foncière. This is paid by the property owner. Owner. And then there's tax d'habitation, and this is paid by the person that's occupying the property, which could be the owner or the tenant. The French government is currently in the process of phasing out tax d'habitation for everyone apart from high earners and second homeowners. For most people who rent, this has been pretty good news because it lowers their total annual tax bill, but it has been less than welcomed by local authorities who collect the tax d'habitation and use it to fund local services. And it's for this reason that many areas have decided to raise the tax foncière in order to make up for the shortfall in their budgets. Yeah, the rise in the tax foncière rate, which is used to calculate your bill along with other factors like the size of your home, has been pretty steep in some places in France. Last year, Marseille increased the rate by 13.1%. For Tours, it was 11.6% and Pau in southwest France saw a rise of 10%. Meanwhile, Paris intends to raise its tax foncière rate by a 52% in 2023 and Grenoble a city where the rates are already high has just voted to raise theirs by 25% but what was the other change you mentioned Jen? So separate to this are new powers that have been granted to local authorities in areas with housing shortages so these are called zones tendues in French and basically they have the ability to raise the tax d'habitation rate on second homes and they can use that extra money to pay for affordable housing for locals now they're allowed to raise the tax d'habitation by up to 60%. And last week, authorities in Saint-Tropez announced that they intend to do just that. As you can probably imagine, there is some pretty expensive real estate in Saint-Tropez, much of that being second homes uh, owned by wealthy folks. And this has meant a real squeeze on housing for locals. So the mayor of uh, Saint-Tropez, Sylvie Siri, said that the median price of a property in Saint-Tropez had reached 16,000 euro per square meter because of demand from cash-rich outsiders who wanted a summer bolt hole in the sun, um, with the result being that the town has lost 40% of its permanent inhabitants. The mayor said if it goes on like this, no young person will be able to find a place to live in Saint-Tropez. So she reckons that the town will raise about 3 million euro extra from these increases in property taxes, and hopefully they will be able to invest that in building more affordable homes. Local authorities in Paris are also kind of looking to do the same thing. In their case, they're very clear that they want to keep housing for local people and avoid whole areas of the city that end up like ghost towns full of apartments that are only used for a few weeks of the year by wealthy individuals. Really interesting, Jen. And the change in tax rules to distinguish between main residences and second homes is the reason for this new property tax declaration in France, which we have been writing about on our website. This must be completed by everyone who owns a property in France. And you can find out a lot of this information at the local.fr forward slash tag forward slash taxes. But what were you saying about the taxman being nice, Jen? These soaring bills don't sound very nice to me. Although I have to say, you know, the taxman has a reputation for being, you know, demanding and, and us paying out to him. Although my experience is whenever I needed money back from the taxman, it was incredibly quick and incredibly smooth service. And I think I've often spoken to French people about the actual administration and they often say that the kind of the tax system is the thing that works really well in France. Yeah, I think I think it is one of France's most 
effective <laughs> parts of its bureaucracy. And I think it's worth noting that it's not the local tax office employees who are setting the tax rates. That's down to the local and national government. So the people that we're talking about here are the people that work at your local tax office that you might visit or call to talk about an issue. And the big revelation is that they are nice. And if you have a problem, you can go and see them without an appointment sometimes to get help. And you just need to go to the Centre de Finances Publiques website. You can find it on Google. And then enter the name of your commune to find your local tax office. And then you can go in without an appointment and discuss really any problem or issue that you have with them. A lot of our listeners have shared stories about how helpful their local tax office staff are. And it always comes as a bit of a revelation, I think partially because as an American, you're used to the IRS being very difficult. And Brits, I, I think that it's probably the same with the HMRC. So it's kind of a shock when you go into the tax office and, and someone really wants to help you. There are two small caveats here, especially if you're in a small town. First, you should check the opening hours of the office, as a lot of them, especially in small places, have kind of irregular hours, especially with long lunch breaks and whatnot. And secondly, offices in small towns typically don't deal with issues that are um, on every aspect of the spectrum in, in, the how, in the tax system. So for example, they might be able to help you with your annual income tax declaration, but if you have a problem with your property tax, you might have to go to the office in the larger town. If you would rather not travel, then it's still possible to get a phone appointment. I've done this before, actually. It's pretty easy. So you go onto the website, ampo.gouv.fr, and you click contact and rendezvous. It should be in the upper right-hand corner. And basically, you just fill out the concern that you're having, and then you should be able to request a phone call at a specific time with your respective tax branch. If you can't do that, or if you have any issues, you can always just try calling the regular tax phone number, and that's 0 809-401-401. And as we've mentioned, you know, people actually do want to help. So it's worth giving it a try. Thanks, Jen, for sticking up for French tax men and women around the country. I'm going to bring in John Litchfield again, who joins us from Normandy, to get his view about the French and their relationship towards taxes. John, we're talking about the famously demanding French taxman who imposes one of the highest tax burdens in Europe. John, do the French accept the burden on their pockets in return for investment in public services? Or is there a limit? Does it breed resentment that can boil over? You, you know, it's a very strange thing that I, I think some people resent it. And I think anyone that runs a small business in this country, uh, if they're employing people, resent the amount they have to pay in payroll taxes. And it does mean that it's hard to employ people in France compared to other countries, which is one of the reasons historically, I think, why unemployment has been higher here. That's something Macron's been trying to sort of wind back with some success, but also with people disputing what he's doing. I, the odd thing is, you know, as, as you know yourself, income tax is not high in France. You know, the sort of what comes out of your wages from income tax is not necessarily very high. In fact, for many people, don't pay it at all. What are high are VAT, the tax you pay on what you buy in the supermarket or wherever, which of course is, is now, you know, with high inflation is a significant thing. And, and secondly, what you pay directly for, the, for your social welfare protections into the SECU system, which is very high. So in a sense, people know what they're paying for, and therefore they do accept that SACU is there for them. And that may be one of the reasons why pension reform is such a hot topic and a really disputed issue, because people feel they're paying for their retirement in this way, paying a lot of money for it, and therefore they're entitled to what they've been promised. Now, moving on to where in France is in the news this week. Jen, you've picked out a place, indeed a couple of places. Tell us where they are and why they're in the news. 
So the first place that I've picked out is the eastern French city of Colmar, which normally is known for its Christmas market. It rivals the one in Strasbourg. But this week we're talking about Colmar because the city is giving out free chickens. Free chickens, Jen. I'm just going to let you carry on here. Okay, so basically the reason why Colmar is giving out free chickens is it's part of a campaign to decrease food waste. So the 20 conglomerates of the Colmar urban area have been passing out free chickens since 2015, and so far they've given out over 3,000 of them. And it's all because it turns out chickens can eat about 300 grams of waste per day, which adds up to about 100 kilograms of waste annually for a two-person household. And basically, Colmar is allowing households in the area to sign up with the town hall, request their chicken, and do so before March 24th. And basically, if you're chosen, then you'll receive your chicken on June 10th. If you're living in that area and you want to apply, you do have to keep in mind that your house needs to be chicken suitable and that local authorities do have the right to check in and make sure that that's the case. Wow, it sounds like it's far easier to get a chicken in Colmar than a Paris Olympics ticket, guys. However, uh, Jen, Colmar is far from the only place in France rolling out these green initiatives. Tell us about some of the others you've come across. Well, first of all, a lot of town halls are passing out free worms, too. Don't worry, they're not to cook with or to keep as pets. They are actually meant to help with composting. So several cities across the country have launched initiatives to encourage composting. And actually, starting in 2024, France is going to require that all households have access to a composting bin. For now, people living in Aix-en-Provence or the Greater Lyon area can just contact their town hall or go online to register for a composter. In Paris, if you attend a composting distribution event, then you you can get a free worm composting bin, also called a lombri composteur in French. And then there's some other campaigns that I've picked out from different towns across the country, and some of them focus on school lunches. So the city of Grenoble has introduced a full vegetarian menu this year. That means that students still get the choice of meat or fish every day, but now they're also given a vegetarian option. And then there's also a small 600-person town in Brittany called Langoué, and they have been offering 100 organic food at their school canteen. Now, one other place that has been in the news this week, Jen, in fact, it's been on the front page of Time magazine. Macron's been tweeting about it. It is, of course, the River Seine and the plan for us all to be able to swim in it one day. Now, this is linked to the Olympics in 2024. After the Olympics, am I just going to be able to turn up in my Speedos and bring my inflatable baguette and jump in the River Seine for a swim? (laughs) Well, I don't think you'll be able to just jump off a bridge into the Seine, unfortunately, although that does sound a bit appealing during a heat wave in Paris. But basically, the plan is to install several pools, kind of like the ones that are set up along the Bassin de la Villette, that's in northeast Paris, right outside of our office, along the Seine, and for them to be operational in 2025. Now, you're going to have to swim in designated areas, you know, in order to be protected from boats and other floating objects out in the middle of the river. But the wild thing is that, yes, public officials do expect the water to be clean enough for swimming. Hold on, Jen. I jumped in the Bassin de la Villette outside our office when they installed a pool and I resurfaced with a coat of green algae all over me. I'd like to see the Paris Olympians deal with that. Now, is this really possible? How are they going to pull this off? So it's all part of a 1.4 billion euro plan that has been headed by regional authorities to clean up the river. So actually, swimming in the Seine has been banned since 1923, so 100 years. And these days, if you jump in the river, then you could end up with a fine. It's also Um, pretty dangerous to just jump in as well. Yeah, it is really dangerous. I wouldn't want to do it. There are two issues, though, that they're tackling with this cleanup process. The first is trash in the river. So each year, nearly 360 tons of waste are collected from the water, uh, which understandably does not make it very appealing for swimming. And then the other issue is pollution from sewage. So according to Vivian Walt, who has covered this cleanup plan for Time magazine, 
Last year, 1.9 million cubic meters of untreated wastewater spewed into the sun. And this primarily happens during heavy rains. So in order to deal with this, uh, local authorities have created a large rainwater storage tank that's near the Austerlitz train station so that basically when heavy rains come, they don't push that untreated wastewater back into the river. Okay, I'm getting excited now, Jen. You've started to convince me. When will it be safe enough to swim in the Seine? Well, technically, there were some days this past summer where it actually was safe enough already. So the goal of local authorities is to reduce pollution levels by 75%. And last summer, so the summer of 2022, daily samples of river water were collected. And seven days out of 10, they were found to be either satisfactory or excellent. So Olympic organizers, understandably, have said that these results are very, very encouraging. But there are still some hazards that could cause problems for water-based Olympic events that they're planning to have take place in the sun, like the triathlon. Basically, if there are large storms, then the river may need to be closed for swimming for a few days, about two to three, just to make sure that pollution levels are safe. And then for the everyday swimmers who are excited about taking a dip in the sun in 2025, you will be comforted to know that the water is going to be tested every day, just like it is at the Bassins de la Vida. So even if you come out with the green slime, you can rest assured that the water is technically safe enough to swim in. Okay, and we will reassure listeners that Emma and Jen will also test the water in the Seine as soon as it is safe to do so. Do you agree, Jen? Uh, yeah, come we'll on, see. Jen. Put your name on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll see me diving in. Okay. (laughs) Monday, March the 20th is a special day in France and indeed around the world because it's the annual International Day of La Francophonie, which officially is held to celebrate the French language and promote the positive initiatives for learning French in France and around the world. There are cultural events taking place in French-speaking countries. But just how widely spoken is French around the world? Emma? How many people actually speak French these days and where are they all? Quite a lot of people speak French, actually. Uh, There are around 300 million French speakers worldwide, apparently, and of those, 100 million speak it as their first language. So it's an official language in 29 different countries and it's also one of the official languages for um, international organisations like the UN and the Olympics, of course. It's also spoken on all five continents. So in Europe, obviously, we have France, plus Belgium and Switzerland and some of the little microstates like Andorra and Monaco. In South America, we have French Guiana. In North America, of course, there's Canada. There's the Seychelles and the Vanato. And in Africa, there are 17 countries that have French as an official language and several more where it's quite widely spoken. And in addition to this, of course, we have France's overseas territories. They're officially part of France, but they encompass the Caribbean, the Pacific, South America, Antarctica. In Antarctica, we have what they call the Terre Australe et Antarctique Francais, which is basically just a research station, but it's French territory officially. So that means that French is officially spoken on all five continents. It's the third most spoken language in the EU and it's moved up a place since Brexit, since English-speaking UK left. But actually, the highest number of French speakers are not in Europe at all, but in Africa, uh, which is for reasons obviously mostly to do with colonialism. But a lot of the former French colonies, especially in West Africa, retain French as one of their country's official languages. And there are also countries like Algeria, where French has no official status. The two official languages of the country are Arabic and Berber, but nonetheless, a lot of people speak French and it's still taught right from primary school. And if you're learning French, like I am, then you're in good company because there are about 50 million French learners around the world, although that stat is a bit more vague because obviously it depends how you count a French learner. Now, Emma, one of the many things I've learned is that French is slightly different depending on where it's spoken. For example, there's differences between the French in France and just over the border in Belgium. And I'm really jealous of the Swiss-French number system. For example, instead of 80 for 80, they say 80. 
And for 90, they say nonant, which is so much simpler than the French number system. But basically, it does differ around the world, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Just because we've got this wide geographical range of, uh, of French speakers, there are several different forms of the language that have developed. So we have Creole languages, which are a sort of French mix. They're spoken mainly in the Caribbean, but also in the Seychelles and once upon a time in the US state of Louisiana. They're really quite different. I mean, uh, I was in the Seychelles on holiday last year. And if you saw Creole written down, you could just about figure out the French words. But when you heard it, it was completely different. And I was totally lost. It sounds more like German or Dutch. So that's a whole different language, really. But even within French-French, there are still quite a lot of differences over different accents and different slang words. And I think probably the French spoken in Canada is the most famous example of this. It's still French, but the accent is really quite different. And in fact, French-speaking Canadians, known as Québécois, are often subtitled when they appear on French TV, even though they are speaking French. They also have quite a lot of different sort of phrases and different slang words. Probably the most famous example of that is tabernacle, which is like the Québécois equivalent of putain is the, the curse word. Thanks, Emma. And even within France itself, there is their own very own backwards language called Verlin. I know you guys know what I'm talking about. This is uh, heard quite often among, well, among lots of people in France where the French invert their words. It's a type of slang. And I think the best person to tell us more about it is language expert Camille Chevalier-Carfis from French Today. So Verlin has, is a way of speaking. Uh, it comes from l'envers. Vers long, you just mix up the syllables. Not any French word can be turned into a verlan. For example, if you took the word un camion, you couldn't say un mionca. It's not something that we say, okay? So on the basis of it, can it be done? Yes, it can be done. You can scramble the syllables of a word, but only a couple of words really make it into everyday verlan. And some seem to be ageless, like they seem to have been there forever. Saying une meuf, for example, instead of femme, is something quite common. Others definitely are not timeless. For example, when I was younger, there's this singer called Renaud, who has a song who was Les Béton. And it comes from the slang expression Les Tomber, which means let, let it be, okay? So Les Tomber. Les Béton, and it was quite a big hit. And because of this song, everybody started to use the expression Les Béton. And then I talked to my daughter the other day, so I should say that I'm 51 and my daughter is 18, and we were talking about actually Verlan and slang, and she said, I've never heard Les Béton. I've heard my daughter use Veuch for cheveux, something that I would never use. And some of them are, as I said, like in my days. <laughs> and still now you will hear muff for femme. You would hear cuff for flick. So it's funny because as you can see, it's not only the syllables that are inverted, but also sometimes there is a pronunciation that just changes. It's just what flows naturally, I would say. Really interesting stuff there from Camille Chevalier-Carfis from French Today. Emma, you got a favourite Verlan word? Um, yeah, I really like meuf, actually. It's the, the inverse of femme, and it's got quite an interesting history that it was originally kind of used about women in a slightly derogatory way, like you would say my meuf, like my, you know, my chick, my hottie, whatever. But more recently, women themselves have been reclaiming it, and now you would use it to describe like a girl's night out or whatever. So, you know, you might go out and say to your friends, yeah, salut, mes meuf. So I quite like it for that reason that we're reclaiming it. And do you use it? 
sometimes. Mm. Uh, I must admit, I'm a bit of a wimp when it comes to using a lot of uh, French slang. I like to know it, but not show it. Jen, what about you? For me, I think my favorite is oof, which is the vernant of fou, meaning crazy. And it's just a fun one to say. I, I like saying it. And it's fun to like describe an exciting activity as un truc de oof. Now, we picked out some things that we only really know about French once you move to France. It's quite frustrating, really, all that French you learn in school or at university or whatever, but you only really know certain things about the language when you move here. Jen, do you want to start us off? Yeah, so when I first moved to France, I kept making this mistake where I would go order something and say, puis-je avoir, which means may I please have, basically. Um, And it's super formal French. And basically, I I was ordering a drink at a bar, and one of my French friends just started laughing after I said puis-je. And he was like, I've never heard anyone say that in real life. Like, that's what a teacher says or a grandma says. And so basically, my French teacher led me a bit astray with that one. And then the other thing that I've learned since living in France is chaud or should is not necessarily sexual. So I was always taught in school, like, be really careful saying I am hot in French. Je suis chaud means that you're sexually excited. And in actuality, people say je suis chaud to mean I'm down. I'm down to go do something. I'm free. And so that really shocked me when I first moved to France because I have been taught the opposite and to really, really avoid the word chaud. Yeah, it means I'm up for for it, no? Yeah, I'm up for it. I'm down. Okay. So that was something that I learned on the ground. Emma, what have you picked out for us? Just like Jen, I feel that my French teachers also slightly misled me because at school we were always taught that you make any kind of request with je voudrais. Indeed. Um, je voudrais and ham sandwich. Have you ever heard anyone say je voudrais? Never. No, um, we neither. But also I was told that it's kind of, it's not that it's old fashioned, even though it is, but it's kind of expressing like a, a future desire of something that you'd like to do one day. So you might use je voudrais if you're like, oh, you know, one day I'd really like to climb Machu Picchu or see the Northern Lights or whatever. Mm. But if you're in a bakery, you're like, one day maybe I would like a ham sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> the one behind the counter is like, what? Do you want a sandwich? Or so do what not? do we say for, for a coffee or a ham sandwich instead of je voudrais? Well, normally you just ask for just ask for what you want on yeah. sandwich, s'il vous plaît. Yeah, um, je prends, they say je, je prends. prends yeah. Yeah. For me, guys, correct me if I'm wrong, but I have never heard anybody say sacre bleu, zoutalo, or mon dieu since I've been in France. No, as a kind of form of uh, expression of anger or whatever. I know one person who has once heard someone say sacre bleu. It was a lady walking outside our office who was nearly knocked over by a cyclist and she was she approximately 90 years old. So right, there you have it, yeah. It's quite old-fashioned. What do they say instead? Putain! Just go putain for everything, yeah. But that's something that you're kind of taught in England, I think, all these French words that like nobody uses. And I think the one thing that I wasn't ready for coming to France was the accents, especially the one in the South. You know, I just presumed everybody spoke kind of this classic French you hear on the TV or whatever. And I really insulted a woman from, I think she was from Avignon in a boulangerie, actually. I just said, you know, where are you from? She was like, Avignon. I'm like, no, no, where are you really from? And she's like, I'm France, Avignon. And I was like, it was just the southern accent was so strong. I just presumed she was like me, you know, a foreigner speaking French. But uh, it's strong in the what? The southwest and the south, the accents and the north. Yeah, the, the southwest has quite a distinctive accent and the north has an accent they call shti. The shti um, yeah. But actually, I always found when I was in the southwest, I always found it much easier to follow people because they just speak more slowly. Parisians just talk super fast all yeah. the time. Indeed. Thanks, guys. And moving on to our reader question. Now, this is a question we get asked quite a lot, and I think there is some misunderstanding, perhaps understandably, but also misreporting on France's rules around this. Emma, it concerns the question of whether there is a hijab ban in France. Can you clear this up for us? 
Well, the very short answer to this is that France has does have some restrictions on the wearing of the hijab, but it's not a ban. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about the scarf or head covering worn by some Muslim women. And I'm going to use the Arabic word hijab because in France it's quite confusing because the word voile, veil, is routinely used to describe both a face veil or face covering and the headscarf. So it can actually be quite difficult to understand what's being referred to if you're sort of following the, the debate in France. But garments such as the niqab, or the burqa, the full-length costumes which include a face covering, they are banned in public places in France. They have been since 2010 and there's a risk of €150 Euro fine for breaching that. However, the headscarf, the hijab, is not banned in public places, but there are some restrictions on wearing it and these are to do with France's rules on laïcité or secularism. We have kind of covered laïcité as a whole separate topic in a previous podcast, so I'm maybe not going to go into it in huge detail here, but... What the rule basically says is that everyone is allowed to practice their religion in France, but that the state has no involvement in religion. So what that means in practice is things like no nativity plays in state schools, because it's a Christian festival, obviously, no Christmas cribs in town halls, which are public buildings, and that employees who are the public face of the state, so that would be people like police officers, town hall staff, teachers, are forbidden to wear any outward symbol of their religion while they're at work, whether that's a crucifix or a kippah or a hijab. And in addition to this, state-run schools, which is most of them, all religious symbols have been banned in state-run schools since 2004. But these rules don't cover people people who are just visiting state buildings. So if you have an appointment at the town hall but you don't work here, you can wear the hijab, that's no problem. Or if your kids are in schools and you're going into schools for like a parents' evening or something, that's fine. So that's what the rule says. But as ever in life, what the rule says and what actually happens, there does seem to be quite a lot of misunderstanding, even within France itself, about the rule on hijabs. Some of it is genuine because it's a complicated topic, but there are also quite a lot of deliberate so-called misunderstandings that are done for political reasons, particularly among politicians on the right. Yeah, OK. Now, two areas of misunderstanding and indeed continued debate surround mums accompanying kids on school trips and whether they should be banned from wearing the hijab and also female students at university. What does the law say on these two areas, Emma? Well, the mums on school trips situation is absolutely clear. There is nothing in laicite that prevents this because they're not in school. They're not representatives of the state in any way. And in fact, back in 2020, uh, the guy who was at the education minister at the time, Jean-Michel Blanquet, he kind of clarified this, that this is allowed after yet another controversy about mums who accompanying kids on school trips. I mean, this is quite common in France that, you know, parents get involved with helping out on whenever the kids have a a trip out. I believe you went to the Louvre recently with your kids and it's common for mums to do this and there's absolutely nothing in laïcité that prevents mums from wearing a headscarf while they're doing this. When it comes to universities, they're not covered by that 2004 law that we talked about, banning religious symbols in schools because that's only schools. So female students can wear a hijab on a university campus and if you visit a university, particularly in Paris, you will see some students wearing it. So... Really, these aren't controversies at all because the law is perfectly clear, but they sort of refuse to die. And as I said, they they are often fanned by Mm. politicians on the right. Now, there's also quite a lot of misunderstandings around this in the foreign press and media whenever there's a flare-up, really. Why is that? Why is there so much confusion, perhaps, abroad? Well, I mean, partly, like, it's like I said that, you know, France itself is, is a bit confused about it. Yeah. Secondly, foreigners in general find the whole idea of laïcité quite confusing because it is very different to what we see. And sometimes there's just misunderstandings that are based on either a translation error, like I mentioned, you know, the voile can be either a, a veil or a scarf, um, and sometimes just misunderstandings about the French political system. So, for example, 
example, in 2021, the French government was putting through its anti-separatism bill, which was about trying to combat radical Islamism. The bill itself had no mention at all of the hijab. It was nothing to do with that. But when the bill went to the Senate, senators tried to add a couple of amendments which would further restrict the wearing of the hijab. And Senators can do this to any bill once it gets through the Parliament and to the Senate, and they frequently do. But these amendments have no chance of becoming law if the government doesn't support them. And sure enough, these amendments were squashed. But it still kind of got reported in the foreign press as French government moves to ban the hijab. So sometimes it is just a misunderstanding like that on a specific issue. But I mean, for, for people visiting France, there really is nothing to restrict them from wearing the hijab, since tourists obviously are not representatives of the state. But I, I, I find it sad because here at the local, you know, we get questions from lots of people and I had a question from a reader the other day who said that his daughter had begun wearing the hijab and they wanted to visit France but they were worried about it and it it makes me sad to think that people feel that they're not welcome in France. In the big cities especially in Paris you will see quite a few people wearing them. In rural or remote areas it's certainly less common and it is possible you might get some comments in rural areas because it does seem that some French people find this a controversial issue but there is nothing in law to prevent that. Interesting. Thanks Emma and we hope that's cleared up the question for our listeners. Now rounding off this week's episode as usual we will turn to some life hacks for those of you living or visiting France. I'm going to start this week, guys. Is that okay? I think it's due to the recent fuel blockades and even last year there was shortages of petrol right across the country. There is a good government website. The address is prix-carburant.gouv.fr and basically you can check out the status of the petrol stations near wherever you are in France. And we have loads of information on this and and the state of uh, any petrol strikes and blockades and refineries on our website at thelocal.fr slash tag slash fuel. Over to you, Emma. Uh, yeah, I've got an event this week. It is a Paris-based one, so sorry to people in the uh, in the rest of France. But this is the festival that they call Bonlieu Blues. Well, it's mostly jazz and blues. And it basically is just a series of small concerts throughout the Saint-Saint-Denis area, which is the suburbs just to the north and east of Paris. It runs from late March to early April, and there's dozens of uh, concerts. Like I say, mostly jazz and blues, but some other ones. Really interesting artists, and most of the tickets are either free or cheap. So it's a great thing to do and explore an area of Paris or just outside Paris. Paris that is perhaps less well known for tourists, but fun for my year, my money. And indeed, you can find out more about this and other events in spring on our website, where we'll have an article featuring some of the best events to go to in France over the next few months. Jen finishes off. My little life hack this week is it has to do with the fact that you get a lot of spam messages, phone calls, emails in France. And one thing that you can do whenever you receive one of those is just to Google the phone number or Google the email and just to see if it's from a reputable source. You don't want to accidentally click on a link and have it take you to a faulty website. So definitely exercise caution with that. And actually, the French government does have a website. It's called blocktel.gouv.fr. And you can go on that. You can add your phone number onto the list to not be contacted. We have heard some reports that it's it's not super effective, but it's better than nothing. So worth trying. Mm. Excellent advice, Jen. Thanks, Emma. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, John. As usual, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thanks to you all for listening. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ 
the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. 